You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm your host, Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Adam Carl of the Scandinavian Department. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. So, Adam, I brought you on today because I saw that you were interested in Norse mythology. I guess I'd just like to know more about how you came to Norris mythology and what you're doing here on campus with it. Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's the first thing that people always ask me. Why are you in the Scandinavian department? Are you Scandinavian? And I'm not. But I think I have to go with Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring into the Two Towers. My family's not terribly religious, but those are the closest things we have to holy books. And my mom can attest to this. We had the extended editions of everything. And now we have it of The Hobbit, too. We'd read all the books and we'd watch all the movies every Christmas. In a day? Well, not in a day. Okay. (laughs) But like in the course of December, whenever you have time. So I owe it to Tolkien. And he was a professor, too. What was it? He started The Hobbit because he was grading somebody's paper and just wrote the first sentence. And then that was how the book was born. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. The story? Yeah. Yeah, That's the folklore. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I wanted to be Tolkien. I wanted to study Old Norse. If you listen to Rohirrim, Viggo Mortensen, when he's playing Aragorn in The Two Towers, will say a couple lines in Old English. And all Tolkien did was rebrand that Old English into Rohirrim, air quotes there, and it's the same language. You can hear the influence. Have you written anything like Tolkien? (laughs) No, but uh, a lot of people in my program are. He wrote it very late, so maybe I will too. Right. You have to wait for the inspiration. Exactly. For that one really bad paper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so now I'm here. I'm studying Old Norse, which is very close to modern Icelandic. It's a lot of fun. It's the language of the Vikings. Old Norse wasn't written in Latin script, right? Did you have to learn the runic alphabet? Well, here's the dirty secret. I haven't learned runes. I'm the only person (laughs) in the department who still hasn't. I can get by if I have the transliteration, know what they do, but I haven't memorized it. How Uh, do you get by with that? Well, because they did write in Latin script. I feel like they saw the Latin script after Christianization of Scandinavia. Yep. So they wrote in runes all before that time. So you basically just read what was written after Christianization. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And there are archaeologists who will study the runes and will go out into the field and start digging stuff up. Most of that stuff is in a museum by now because Scandinavia pays for that sort of research. So everything's pretty much locked away. We already know about it. There aren't a whole lot of new discoveries to come out. That is starting to change with other technology that's coming up. But if you look at the runic script, it has a lot of cross marks, and a lot of vertical slashes. And you can tell that this alphabet is meant to be carved into things, whether it's wood or stone. Some people uh, even think that there are clay tablets that you could etch a sketch away and then rewrite. So you Uh. could write, we need milk in runes, and then erase it the next day. So it was a carving alphabet. And then when Christianity came through, in Iceland, it's a really nice, easy date. We just round to about 1000 AD. After that happened, people started writing not just in Latin, but in the vernacular in Old Norse. And they started writing down things that their grandparents were telling them, or their parents. And these are the sagas, or some of the folk tales that we have coming out of the medieval North. It's really a whole lot of nostalgia, but it's reliable. This is where the folklore part of my research comes in. We can trust what people tell us, maybe not 100% accurately, but people don't get things horribly wrong. So this is post-Christianization, so these are Christian people. Yeah, Christian so, people writing about their pagan ancestors. So I assume there's 
some bias and some change <laughs> to some of these stories, right? Totally. But not as much as you'd think, and typically only in areas of religious worship or ritual. Certain things will be made more demonic from a Christian perspective than they probably actually were. But we do have some really reliable records. We have a book called Landnamabok, the land-taking book, where people were settling Iceland. There weren't any natives there. It's not like uh, there was an indigenous population that got colonized. It's one of the few cases in the history of humanity where nobody was on the island when new people arrived. The institutional memory, the oral history, the stories that people were telling was so accurate that they remembered who their grandfather was, where the person landed, and how the whole farm developed from there. So we have records going back 200 years before writing. Are Icelandic people just notoriously factual? Well, that is the stereotype even in the Middle Ages. <laughs> They're known as like the record keepers, repository of ancient knowledge, if you will. There were embellishments. But people for a really long time discounted two sagas that we have that say that a guy named Eric the Red and Leif Erikson, his son, went to a really weird place that they called Vinland. It was past Greenland. Historians for a really long time said, oh no, that's a legendary place that doesn't exist. And then we found Viking ruins in Newfoundland in pretty much the exact place that the sagas tell us where they would be. I mean, discount the trolls, take out the dragons. There's always a little bit of truth underneath. Have you read all the sagas? All the popular ones, I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. Some of the unpopular ones. The largest amount of non-Latin stuff that we have coming out of medieval Europe is in Old Norse. There are a couple of reasons why we think that might be. A lot of it has to do with nostalgia and worrying about what your pagan ancestors were doing. Were they in hell? Were they in heaven? They didn't convert. <laughs> you need to kind of work that out. Say, oh no, they were noble pagans. They were following Christ. They just didn't know his name. That sort of stuff. So there was a lot of nostalgia on the one hand, but also sort of having these redemption narratives for their ancestors. You can't trust that as much. That's interesting that people in Iceland wanted to make it look like their ancestors were following Christ, even though they didn't know who Christ was. And I've always noticed that there's a lot of parallels in Norse mythology stories <laughs> between their stories and Christian stories. Like Odin hangs himself on a tree for three days. Mm -hmm. So do you think those stories are kind of the product of people trying to reimagine Norse mythology in a more Christian light? Do you think a lot of these Norse myths are sort of altered in that way? I don't know if they're altered in that way. But I do think you're onto something there where you can imagine a new convert talking to someone who hasn't converted yet. Let's say right around 999 in Iceland. They're talking about which god is better. Are you going to pick Christ or are you going to pick Odin? The Odin guy goes, hey, my god hung on a tree and gave us all this runic knowledge. Went to a trance state, kind of saw the afterlife, came back and gifted this to us. And you can one-up that by saying, oh yeah, my god Christ died for us and came back to life. So you're right? saying that <laughs> the Odin story of hanging on a tree was arose completely likely independently of the Christian story? Yeah, that could be. I think that's the easiest explanation for using Occam's razor. But the reason that that one got preserved and not a whole bunch of other stories about him, that's because there was a comparison to Christianity. I'm really interested in what you think about modern interpretations of Norse mythology. Does Thor of Marvel Comics at all look like Thor of purely Scandinavian mythology? <laughs> no, and I'm fine with that. Yeah? That's how I'm going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say why no, and then I'll say why I'm fine with it later. 
Thor in the mythology, as we're given him in both the prose edda and the poetic edda, should have red hair. <laughs> Is that be, you? <laughs> yeah, he should be ginger. Like that's that's like baseline. Uh, similarly, Loki should be very fair and blonde. He's a smooth talker. He's not the devious, jet black, slicked back hair. He's not a greaser. They're doing, I would argue, a little bit more of a Christ Satan kind of dynamic there. Right. With the good and the evil, the light and the dark. And that's fine. The other thing is that Thor in the poetry is kind of an idiot. I've uh, noticed that yeah. he just kind of runs around with his hammer, right? Just swinging at stuff. Yeah. Whether he should or not, he's going to go and smack something. <laughs> that's interesting that this would be a god. Do you think the Norse or Scandinavian people were actually worshiping this god or they kind of had a sense of humor about him or that could be true because people kind of have a sense of humor about their own religion now right on like which direction that humor goes that depends on the person but yeah we have a lot of archaeological evidence that people were worshiping thor we actually have a couple prayers that might be post-christian so there's some kind of syncretic tradition going on there john lindo has a whole article he's from berkeley just retired about maybe some pleas to Thor for help. Yeah, we have, uh, this is kind of a fun story. We have in Denmark an archaeological find with three different molds for, I think it's iron. You pull in the molten iron and you get jewelry out. And there's one that looks exactly like a Mjolnir, like Thor's hammer. And on the far right side, so Mjolnir is on the far left side, on the far right side there's a cross. And in between, there's a design that could go either way. It looks kind of like a hammer, kind of like a cross. And as far as we can tell, Christianity and paganism coexisted. At least enough for the smith to make money off of both sides, right? Kind of like in Ireland or... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I guess people did worship Thor, so then why did they... Why does he <laughs> seem like such a, I guess, terrible person? <laughs> <laughs> well, think about it this way. You got lots of gods to choose from. That's Your one true. god doesn't have to do everything. Right. Thor can be an idiot because you have Odin to do all the poetry and all the scheming behind the scenes. Right. You know, Thor can really just be the guy who goes out and hits stuff. We also have some sense from the archaeological finds like the hammer, the cast of the hammer, that suggests that Thor was more a man of the people. He was the folk hero, the rural hero. If you're a farmer, you're going to worship Thor. And if you're in the king's court or if you're part of the Jarldom, you know, the upper class, the aristocratic side of things... You're probably going to worship Odin. So there seemed to be a socioeconomic difference between the two. And you might imagine that if the upper class are the ones writing the books later, they'd poke fun at the peasants' gods, right? Right. Like, haha, for that idiot. <laughs> Doesn't know court poetry, haha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, the newest Thor movie had kind of an interesting take. It's kind of about Thor seeing some of the more problematic moments of Odin's past. Which is interesting to me because Odin has some sketchy moments, right? Yeah, he's a total pervert. <laughs> yeah. They even say that there's a translation of an insult that translates to pervert, and it's spot on. Interesting. Yeah. Wait, so someone was insulting Odin? Yeah, it's Loki. Right. Because of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I've noticed, right? Thor is running around just smashing things with his hammers. He's mm -hmm. specifically smashing a certain group. Yeah, uh, You know, the enemies of the gods, which actually come off like not totally bad guys all the time, right? You know, they're you kind of sympathize with them in a lot of cases. I don't know if the medieval audience would have, but I think right. yeah. we totally can see that there's some colonial stuff going on there. We have interpretations of these stories 
do you think these are completely different from how medieval mm-hmm. audiences would have interpreted yeah, the stories they're telling? I think they got to be. Yeah. You know, if we're going to be really good historians, everything has a context. And this is the school of thought that came out of Berkeley. So toe in the party line. here. <laughs> <laughs> you can't read a text in isolation. Right. You have to know who wrote it. You have to know what the target audience was, what the major political things were. I mean, if you take the song war, huh, what is it good for? And you apply that to any war, it starts to lose some of that timeliness. Right. It might pick up different kinds of timeliness, and it might have different impacts, but it's always going to be pointing backwards towards Vietnam, calling on that rhetoric for it. So I think, and this is where I can segue into that, I think it's okay that Marvel's doing its own thing. I think it's doing it really well, because we have to be aware of the thousand-year history between when the Vikings stopped worshipping the pagan gods and what we as human beings who are alive today have to deal with there's a history that they didn't know about that we do do you like study new interpretations of thor i mean is that factor in at all do you study current story retellings yeah totally so you're trying to parse out what's the modern influence what's the medieval portion of it what's christian influence yeah to some degree yeah, you're... Like, you can't really separate things out because then you're ignoring parts of the work, but you can identify certain things that are stylistically in line with the medieval. Right. And so just like in academia, you can always tack an ism onto anything. We call this medievalism. So it's not medieval, but it's trying to be like the medieval. Game of Thrones has a very particular medievalism. It's dark, gritty. It's plague-ridden, rape everywhere, terribleness. Yeah. And it's just throwing all of life's terrible things at you. And that's not what the Middle Ages were like. You know, people lived. Right. People are people. They're kind of decent no matter what. And they do some terrible things sometimes. But then you have the flip side, like Lord of the Rings, to bring it full circle here, (laughs) uh, which is totally invested in the escapist fantasy, the idea that it was a simpler and better time. You don't have industrialization. You don't have neo-Nazi groups running around. And those are both types of medievalism. So we can start identifying who's picking up what, what they're trying to do with it. It keeps you from being that person in the movie theater like, Thor didn't do that. <laughs> like, that's not the point. <laughs> we talk about the kind of colonial element of these stories, you know, where Thor is running around just slaughtering a group of people, basically. <laughs> right. Um, I shouldn't be laughing at that. Sorry. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a fantasy <laughs> world. It's giants. Yeah. I prefer trolls as the translation, but yeah. Right. Should we read them as people? Should we like find this colonial element or should we read, you know, the gods are there to protect the people from elements of nature? Right. I have two thoughts on that. One is aimed at how you should treat the medieval works and the other is aimed at how we should retell them. I don't think it makes any sense to like yell at people who are dead for a thousand years and say, you should have known better. You should have known what colonialism could have done. You should have known what gender politics should be like. Like you should have had egalitarian freedom. We can't do that. It's right. a totally different time. These ideas weren't in place. The events that led to our ideas of these concepts didn't happen. So on the one hand, I don't find that productive. And this is kind of what I tell my undergrad students, too, because I tend to teach courses on, like, Vikings and gender or, like, Vikings and Orientalism. That's a 
kind of a cool intersection there. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Because if you're centered in Rome and you're looking north, there are a bunch of like weird pagans who kind of look like they have civilization. It looks an awful lot like how Asia is treated today. Uh, okay. So it kind of works. But I do find it productive to read the medieval texts to get a new sense, sort of like a human experiment. What did they do? What were the contexts? Is there anything we can learn from that? And one of the things that's really productive is uh, they had multiple genders. It's a spectrum. And you don't think of that when you think of like big, manly, hyper-masculine Vikings. Right. right? That's our conception of them. But there was a sliding scale. You could be hyper-masculine and own a farm and then go out and like wield weapons. And you could be a woman and do that. You could put on chainmail. You could get out a sword. You could go kill people as though you're a man. You could own property. But that meant that you couldn't deal with any of the feminine side of things. Interesting. There was a middle ground where you could practice magic, and magic is very feminine gendered. So you're not feminine or masculine if you're moving from one end of the spectrum to the other. You can't quite own property, but you can't quite be in the women's quarters. But you do have like a ritual, magical kind of realm. And then you have the feminine, which is producing homespun cloth, kind of sequestered, but in charge of the domestic sphere. The women had the keys to the whole house if they were upper-class women. And people could move along these lines pretty freely. And each came with benefits and downsides. But it wasn't a utopia, because you did want to be hyper-masculine. That's how you had the most political and economic agency. But for religious stuff, you definitely wanted to be more on the feminine side of things. So it's not really material benefit, and that's our criticism that we could have. But if I'm talking to, let's say, my family members about non-binary or about transgender people and they're like this is totally unnatural there are two genders two sexes i can point to these texts and say well the vikings didn't see it that way if anyone would have they would have right yeah so it's sort of like a human experiment we can point to it and say things that we know of didn't have to be this way there were multiple categories there wasn't just a binary but you're saying you kind of had to fall into one of the categories still right right because society is still going to put its constraints on you. Carol Clover, also from Berkeley, wrote a whole big long article about this. She kind of made her career out of that article. She's also retired now, unfortunately. But she's still around. She has an office. Odin and Loki, you know, in the myths, mm -hmm. I guess I would say Odin kind of comes off as hyper-masculine, right? I mean, he's like the all-father, right? <laughs> he's like in charge of everything. He's about as high as you can get. Yeah. But he's hand. also practicing magic exactly. right yeah so that's kind of he like occupies two categories right yeah. i'm so glad that you've read this stuff because this is nice <laughs> uh yeah and because he's the head of the pantheon he can get away with it mm. he has the best of both worlds if you're a woman and you want to compete with odin you're gonna lose if you're a man and you want to compete with odin you're gonna lose he just wins at everything whether fairly or unfairly that's beside the point he's gonna win just kind of where that creepy pervert kind of side comes in because he has his way with everybody, whether it's <laughs> consensual or not. Uh, on the flip side, I think this is where you're heading, right? Loki? Right. There's the whole myth, right, where he basically mothers <laughs> Odin's horse. Which right? is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Neo-Nazis don't talk about that part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So he not only, like, shapeshifts into an animal, he shapeshifts genders, and that's not the weird part, right? Right. He is now female sexed enough to give birth <laughs> yeah. and then reverts back to his human male form and then has children like sire's children as a man. 
Right. So he's got the worst of both worlds in some ways because all of his children are monsters. Interesting. But it's not because he goes back and forth on the spectrum because Odin does that too. Right. There's a positive end and there's a negative end to this. And it's completely agnostic to that spectrum. So <laughs> why does Loki get <laughs> kind of this short end of the stick? Yeah, he's half giant. I see. Yeah. So he can't really be one of the gods. Yeah. All right. I mean, he and Odin apparently took a blood bond. So they're technically blood brothers. This is where Marvel gets it wrong. Right. Yeah. I've always thought, you know, they're not, he's not <laughs> Thor's brother. Yeah. yeah. We joke uh, sometimes in the department that we need a stamp that says Marvel's not myth stamp <laughs> for the exams. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Loki keeps trying to get into the in-crowd. He tr- tries to be one of the Aesir, one of the gods, and they never quite accept him. Is that what drives him to end the world? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and it would, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Just a little nicety, and we, <laughs> they would have all survived. Right, right. Cool. Yeah. So we've been talking all about these Norse mythologies and medieval history, but before we started this interview, you actually told me that this isn't even the main focus of your dissertation anymore, which I was a little surprised to hear. So what actually is your dissertation about now? (laughs) Well, uh, that's still kind of in the works. I should have it figured out by now. But this is a pretty common trajectory. People get hooked by the medieval and the Vikings, and then... Our graduate students tend to find cool stuff in the modern period. And that's true for me, too. Uh, so one of my favorite authors, everybody should go out and read her. Her name is Selma Lagerlöf. Uh, she was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in literature. She's Swedish. And she was pushing back up against all these realist novels that I really hate. You know, I don't need to see what flowers were in the jug of the dining room table of this bourgeois home. I don't care give me the trolls. And that's exactly what Selma Lagerlöf does. <laughs> so she goes back, she reads all these Icelandic sagas, the myths, and she starts pulling on those and retelling them in like turn of the century, 1900s. And she was known as the great Swedish storyteller. So she's really captured my imagination now. So she's writing novels? or yeah, novels yeah. and short stories, not really poetry. She okay. tried that and didn't really get published. <laughs> Is, are there like a collection of failed poems? So. <laughs> uh, they're in some of her letters. Okay. Yeah, I just got the chance to read some of them. Were they? They weren't that great, or? I mean, I kind of love her. Okay. So, so... <laughs> they were, should not have been the first thing she published. That's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. From what I somewhat know about Scandinavian literature, Ibsen, right? Yeah. Nice. So she's kind of rebelling against that whole tradition yeah they're kind of contemporaries but because she was a woman she got into writing a little bit later she had a career as a school teacher and uh, ibsen was already writing his plays and his novels and stuff like that long before summer lagerlif got her first book published okay yeah but they're contemporaries and that's kind of the realism i'm talking about right is she like scandinavian tolkien do people know her that well definitely in swedish because she's on the currency okay I oh really bill she's on but yeah wait and she has a fantastic <laughs> hat you should look it up sometime interesting yeah so she is celebrated still to this day and people all across the world probably know nils holgerson's wonderful adventures through sweden it's a little tiny kid who gets shrunk down to the size of like an elf and gets on the back of a goose and flies all throughout sweden I didn't know this was internationally known until some of my international students from Asia 
were in my class and they're like, oh, I read this as a kid. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? Cool. Yeah, but it's a really good fairy tale. Okay. I have to look into this. Selma Lagerlöf. Yeah. L-A-G-E-R-L and then O-umlaut F. What exactly do you do with the works? Do you do you read this as a person who's studying literature or do you read it as a person who's studying history or a little bit of both okay yeah i think our modernists tend to be more on the literature side of things okay but i do have my folklore background from ohio state and that has trained me to treat literature as history right so the thing that folklorists always do is we treat text like it's an object and objects like it's a text archaeologists hate us for that and like literature people hate us for that but it's productive <laughs> i like it so i like looking through some of Lagerlöf's stuff all of the things that she's ever written trying to pull out things in her history things in her life and one of the things that i noticed for a seminar paper i just wrote was that she kind of has a whole outline for how to teach kids because she's mainly writing for kids and it's you can read her novels and her short stories as a sort of like pedagogical portfolio. Oh. Like here's how kids learn. Here's how they don't. These are all the ways in which teachers are failing their kids right now. And I'm going to do better through fiction. Cool. And that's awesome, too. You know, learning can be fun. That was her whole shtick before we even had words for that. <laughs> so you have to know what is going on in Swedish education for that. Yeah. How do you even tackle that? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. That's where the history comes in, because uh, you can go to newspapers, you can look at editorials just like you can today, and you can get the local school issues that people are talking about. Um, those are all digitized because Scandinavia has boatloads of government money for, to like archive this stuff and mm. then research it. One thing that our country should probably work on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Norway has all the oil money, so like anything you ever want from Norway is probably recorded and digitized at this point. Sweden's like second behind them. So you can go there. Or a lot of her letters were preserved. Um, so I went through and I read those. And cool. she kind of outlines what she was trying to do. Even okay. down to like certain passages as she, she's drafting. She's like, that didn't work. Who's she writing one? these letters to? Like everyone. It was email <laughs> of the day or text messaging. <laughs> She's just, like, letting people know, like... Yeah, and I should also mention, because it's kind of important, she's probably the first lesbian writer to win a Nobel Prize as well. Oh, interesting. Did people know? Was she out? Or... <laughs> it was a lot easier to be a lesbian than a gay person at that time. Right. Because you could just be two elderly women living together. Right. That happens. Okay, so it wasn't a topic <laughs> of discussion. Yeah, but the thing the... that surprised me was in her letters to, like, everybody, she would talk about Miss Elton. And that was her girlfriend. And she just mentioned that casually, like, oh, they're going to Italy this month. Or, oh, they're visiting Palestine. <laughs> cool. So it seems like people knew. They just assumed they were really good friends. They didn't know that they were really good friends. <laughs> <laughs> when, wait, when did she live? Oh, boy. I should have this memorized. <laughs> Normally I have, like, my reading list and I can just, like, glance down and look at it. I think she was born, like, 1855 or maybe 1860, somewhere in there. Oh, wow. And Swedish authors tend to live a really long time, so she died in, like, 1930-something. Okay. But she lived through World War One and was a strong advocate for pacifism all throughout it. Did Sweden fight? <laughs> no, <laughs> World no. War. Okay. They, it wasn't, like, for humanitarian reasons, really. They kind of got beaten up by Russia. 
Um, they didn't really have a military to fight with at that point. <laughs> yeah. So everyone was perfectly fine with pacifism. And yeah, history. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any other myths you want to talk about? You ever feel like you you read all these Norse myths and then you like you want to start talking to somebody and then you just sense like, oh, they're not that into it. And then so you just feel like, ah, <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> I feel like I have the opposite problem where I'm just so excited that somebody knows them that I can't help myself from, you know, talking about it. And I think, too, it's different because I have the whole, like, program behind me. That's true. Where people are like, what? You can study that? <laughs> like, there's a hook there. Yeah. In a way that if you're just interested in it, people are like, oh, yeah, well, that's your interest, right? Yeah. It's not like, that's a career option. <laughs> right. How did you say, like, I'm going to study Norse mythology for a career? Well, I was really lucky. Uh, my mom studied medieval literature in college at Ohio State mm. and uh, graduated with an English major. So she was totally sympathetic to the whole thing. And my dad uh, was an electrical engineer and was pretty upfront about the fact that he did that for monetary reasons. You know, he could get a career in that. I still hear undergrads telling me that today. Right. Um, and then hated it so much that he switched to be a microbiologist. Interesting. Uh, and that was always his dream was to like help people and uh, study medicine and health. So I think he was pretty used to the idea that you have to do what you love. Right. You can't just follow the money. Um, and I, I got really lucky in that respect. Right. I know a lot of Berkeley students don't have that luxury of, uh, if not support, just kind of like ambivalence about career options. Right. Uh, but I do think that that's selling not only the PhD in general, but like the humanities short. Because we gain so many skills. I mean, I'm teaching I've right. taught, I guess, what, four years now? Pretty much autonomously. Like, I can choose what kind of reading and composition course I teach. I have to hit certain milestones there. I'm about to teach an elective where I don't really have any kind of, like, course goal. It's just teaching the culture and the literature however I feel like. And um, those are really good public speaking skills. That's, like classroom management that totally would transfer to a workplace uh i'm seeing how university administration works i'm getting language skills like there's a lot of good reasons to go into a graduate program that are not just for the study of the thing right just so happens i'm studying vikings <laughs> yeah not bad it's pretty um, cool pretty cool way to spend your time yeah and i know that a lot of people worry there's like beyond academia here and people trying to teach us how to be professional and I think a lot of that has to do with, like, the background of some students coming in. If they're not from working class backgrounds, yeah, professionalization is a really good idea. Right. You can't show up in a hoodie to every workplace. Maybe right. in the Bay Area, but, like, even then. Uh, so that is important. But it's not like we're totally divorced. It's not like we are the ivory tower. We don't have to be. Right. You know? If we see ourselves that way, then, yeah, we're going to stay that way and not be marketable. But we're learning a lot of things that are applicable. You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley, and this is The Graduates. I'm your host, Andrew Saintsing, joined by Adam Carl of the Scandinavian Department. Well, it's been really great to have you here. Thank you so much for agreeing to come in and talk about your studies and your plans for the future. Thanks so much. Thank you for all of your really specific questions and, you know, getting past some of those content-related things into the transmission, and I really appreciate that. Like, you brought a good amount of knowledge that I'm not used to, so thank you. <laughs> no, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoy talking mythologies of any kind and yeah. and okay. seeing, like, uh, 
more of their context in the world. Yeah. Well, and thank you for having this kind of podcast so that people, not just in Berkeley, but, you know, like my family members out in Ohio or in Florida, they can listen. And I really appreciate that. Yeah.